The Bible says in the book of Job, um, as surely as sparks fly upward, man is born to sorrow or to troubles. And I love that verse because what it does is it takes something that we understand scientifically in an earthly sphere, uh, the sparks that fly upward, and anyone that's ever looked at a fire and watched with uh, you know, dazed look as those sparks and embers just kind of float off into space. You understand the picture that's there. And it's, it's a scientific law that if a fire is on earth, then the sparks are going to fly upward. And then he goes on to, in, in that to say that as surely as that is true, man is also born to troubles. So another law that is absolutely certain is that if you are on this earth, that you're going to have problems in your life. And that is true universally. It says in, in, the, in the gospel, Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount, that the sun shines on the just and the unjust alike and that the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. And so that was true. That's true for you and I. We deal with that on a daily basis in our lives. And it was also true for the Apostle Paul, who is writing this letter to the Corinthians. And you only have to follow his life for a little while through the book of Acts and his ministry and the things that are recorded there. And you realize very quickly uh, that he had just as much trouble and trials as anyone else does that walks um, in this world. So one of the problems that the Apostle Paul faced um, pretty much constantly throughout his ministry was that there were a group of people that would follow him uh, from place to place that he would go wherever he would plant churches, and they would seek to undermine his authority. They would seek to uh, um, subvert his purpose and turn the people that he was reaching out of the way or the path, the direction that he set them in, and to turn them in another course. They were called the Judaizers. And what they did is they would, is they would come in to where Paul had preached, and they would say that Paul is good, but he doesn't have the message down exactly right. He's telling you that you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior. And that's true partially. But you cannot negate or neglect keeping the works of the law. And therefore, you must be circumcised. You must keep the laws of Moses. And it is through grace and the keeping of the law and the rituals that you'll find salvation. And that was a constant thorn in the side of Paul the Apostle and a constant problem that he had to deal with as he would leave an area and then have to follow up with these people and say, no, they don't know what they're talking about. Now, part of the message of these Judaizers, at least a, a group of them, half of them, is that they were teaching that there was no resurrection. The Sadducees, which was a sect of Jews, very alive and very powerful in those days, held the belief that there was a God and that there was a Moses and that there was a history and all of those things were true. But they didn't believe in anything supernatural. And so they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in any of the things that were miraculously testified of. And they also didn't believe in a resurrection. They believed that you lived in this life and that once you died in this life physically, that that was it. That was your turn, so to speak. And those Sadducees that had had that doctrine had made a way into Corinth as well, and they had 
convinced some of the Christians that were there in Corinth that there was some credence to what their message was. And so some of the believers that were there in Corinth were teaching and believing that there was no such thing as the resurrection from the dead. And so as we break now into chapter 15, we come to the final issue that the Apostle Paul is seeking to address with the church now and correcting them in all of their errors. And so he spends this chapter not uh, lightly, but very thoroughly and comprehensively Um, both affirming that there is in fact a resurrection and then proving beyond any shadow of a doubt that it is so and then declaring that it is a tenet and it is uh, an essential part of what we believe and that a Christianity that is void of the resurrection is not a Christianity at all. And so he begins in chapter 15 in verse 1 by saying, moreover, brethren. Now, I love this, the way he begins this uh, topic on the resurrection, uh, in that he starts it with this word, moreover. Back in chapter 12, he shifted gears and he began talking about spiritual things. And so he spent a whole chapter, chapter 12, talking about spiritual manifestations, spiritual gifts, the offices of those whom God calls within the church to do his work. Incredible chapter. And then he builds on that. And he gets into the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He talks about love. And the whole chapter of chapter 13 is on that topic of love, the great love chapter in the Bible. And then he builds on that even from there and comes back into a chapter on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, talking about the importance of using the gifts of God to edify the church, and to reach the world with the love that God has provided. And so he's building this spiritual phrase as he moves through these final chapters of Corinthians, talking about spiritual manifestations and then spiritual fruit and then spiritual edification. And now he builds on that even further or goes even deeper, if you would, as he comes into chapter 15 by beginning by saying, moreover. Now, here's what I love about this moreover, is that as he digs deeper into Christian theology, where he ends up is right back on the surface where he began. And that's so important that we understand There are some people that as they get to know God and as they walk on in their Christian life and they become mature in the things of Christ and they dig deeper into the Bible, into God's truth, they desire to know the deep things of God. And sometimes you'll hear about that or you'll see someone who's just into the deep things of God. They want to go deeper. And so they study Greek, they study Hebrew, they study theology, and they'll dig into uh, just the linguistic intricacies of how the Bible was written and the hidden truths or Bible codes and different things that people can just do almost when they get bored as Christians and they want to know something else. But here's the remarkable thing about the deep things of God, and there are deep things of God, believe me, is that the deep things of God will always point you back to the surface things of God, which is the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of his love and of his person and and, and of his plan and of his redemption and of eternal life. And God always brings it back to that. And so, yeah, there are deep things, but those deep things are always pointing to the surface things, which is exactly where Paul ends up here. He says, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel 
which I preached unto you, which you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. He says, let's get back to the foundational elementary things of what makes you a Christian and what it was that I established when I established the church that was there in Corinth. It all comes back to the gospel. I declare unto you now, again, the first thing that I declared unto you at the beginning. And he says four things about the gospel. Number one is that he preached it. He says, it's the gospel that I preached unto you, the word I gave you. Second of all, it was the gospel that you received. You heard it from my mouth that went into your ears. It resonated within your heart. The seed germinated there and you allowed it to bring you into the new birth. You received the gospel that I brought to you. Then third, he says, wherein you stand. That is spiritually in your relationship with God and with eternal things. Your position and your foundation and your footing is set upon this gospel. It's where you are standing. It's why there's balance in your life. It's why you're not being subverted and swayed. It's why you're not today who you once were in days past in your existence. You're standing there. You're settled. You're on a firm foundation. And then number four, he says concerning this gospel, by the way, by which also you are saved. And there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. And there is no other way associated with that name that we can be saved except by the gospel that he provided in his death, burial, and resurrection, and then our subsequent receiving of that gift and our salvation that comes from it. He says, so you are saved according to that gospel if, he says, you keep in memory what I preached unto you unless you have believed in vain, or rather to say, unless there was nothing in your faith to begin with. And so what he's about to tell them is that it is essential that you hold to the tenets and the essential things of the gospel that make it what it is and not allow yourself to be swayed or moved by false teaching and false doctrine that would change the message and make the gospel something other than what it was that was originally preached to you. And so Paul says, I'm going to redeclare to you the gospel which was preached to you. And here it is. He says in verse 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He says to them concerning this gospel, first of all, He says that this gospel is not something that originated with me, but it is something that originated with God. He says, I delivered unto you that which I also received. That's important that we understand that, is that the gospel that we stand in is not a man-made gospel. We do not and are not allowed to create God in our image. That is the things that we think he should be like or the things that resonate most with our personality or our lifestyle or what we like and dislike. 
But God tells us who he is, and he tells us what life is all about, and he tells us the way to be saved. And there's no other thing than that. It's what he ordained and declared. And so Paul says, I didn't make it up when I came to you or bring to you a brand of Christianity that I myself have branded, but rather I delivered to you that which only came to me from God. I received it from him. And therefore, this gospel that you and I believe today is a gospel that originated with God. It is the only way for man to be saved. And then he says this, and here's the, uh, the, the what, what makes the gospel was it is. He says, first of all, how that Christ. And understand that this gospel that we believe in and that we stand upon and are saved by is a Christocentric gospel. That is, it's all about Jesus and not at all or none at all about ourselves. It's that Jesus Christ was God born in the flesh lived in this world as a man, a sinless life after being virgin born, qualified to be who he was because of all the prophecies in the Old Testament that had to be met and fulfilled in order him to hold that position. And then in a sinless state, dying as a lamb, receiving in himself the penalty for the sins of the world. And so it's a Christocentric gospel. It isn't Jesus and his grace and his salvation and something that we do. It is him alone. He's the savior. We could not die for ourselves because we were not sinless. And so therefore he did what we could not do. It was Christ. And what did he do? It says that he died. He was crucified, the just for the unjust, the righteous in place of the corrupt and the fallen, And his heavenly standing and position was transferred upon the guilty, that's you and I, through faith. He says it's Christ who died and he died for our sins and that was according to the scriptures. That he would be the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. And then that he was buried and that he rose again the third day Again, according to the scriptures, that which the scriptures declared that he would do, that he would bear, that he would die, and then he would rise again. And the reason why Jesus had to rise again from the dead in order for the gospel to be the gospel is because the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the seal of God's approval upon the sacrifice that was made and upon the price that was paid. It was the proof that Jesus was, in fact, sinless. Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. And so therefore, if a person sins in their life, then what they deserve and will receive is the penalty of death within themselves. But if a person is actually sinless, then even if they die, they must rise again because they haven't received the penalty of death or the penalty of sins or the wages of sin. And thus Jesus, because he was sinless, he rose again from the dead, thereby proving that he was justifiably the savior of mankind. He was innocent and yet he rose. And so this is the gospel, Paul says. I'm declaring it unto you now. It was provided by God. It is preached by men. And then it is received by faith. And you'll notice that in verses one and two, he uses both of those words. In chapter or in verse one, he uses the word received. 
And then in verse 2, he uses the word believed. And that's how it works. You hear the gospel that God loves you. And he loves you so much that he provided a way for your sins to be forgiven in his son. And then when you hear that message of the gospel, you have the choice, and everyone has this choice, of whether or not you're going to believe that message or whether you're going to reject that message. And don't be deceived. Faith is a choice. And so you believe that message, and then upon believing that message, now the second part of it is that you receive it. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the sons and the daughters of God. And so we believe the message, and then we receive it. We respond to it uh, in some way, and we, we acknowledge before God that we're sinful, that we cannot save ourselves, and then we allow him into our lives, and at that moment, we are saved. That's what the gospel is. And so Paul declares to them the gospel of this. Now, concerning the resurrection, which is the part of the gospel that's being held in question now by these Corinthians, or at least some of these Corinthians, the apostle Paul is going to go now into it as a lawyer. He's going to take off his pastor apostle hat, and he's going to put on his attorney hat, and he is going to prove undeniably that the resurrection not only happened, and that it's real, but that it's a hope that you and I have. And so what he does now is he's going to call seven witnesses to the stand to testify to the fact that there is a resurrection and that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. The first witness that he calls to the stand, he already did in the first four verses, and that witness is the scriptures themselves. The scripture itself testifies of the fact that there is a resurrection. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, the psalmist declares, and it's David speaking by um, the word of God. Goodness, of all the things. I, you see all the yellow tabs I have here? I, did, I missed Psalm 16, verse 10 in all my tabs, you know. But he's speaking by the Spirit of God. And David says concerning Christ when he would die, he says, For you will not leave my soul in hell, neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. That you will not be dead long enough or in the grave long enough for corruption to come upon that life. We read in the book of Jonah concerning Jonah's death and resurrection as he was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. There are countless types and shadows, scriptures in the Bible. Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. There's other ones in Isaiah. The, the scriptures all throughout testify to the fact that God has defeated the grave and that there is, in fact, a resurrection and that, the, that, that Christ would be the first one who would resurrect from the dead. And so what it would mean for the Corinthians is that if they were those that ascribed to believing the Bible to be the word of God, then they could not deny the fact that the Bible would teach that Jesus would rise from the dead. And so to say that there is no resurrection and that therefore Jesus didn't rise from the dead would be to deny what God has testified in the scripture to be truth and to be fact. And so the scriptures that every Christian must ascribe truth to testify that there is in fact a resurrection. The second witness that, uh, that he calls to the stand is Peter. And he says in verse five, and he was seen after the resurrection, that is, of Cephas. And that is Peter. And the reason he singles out Peter is because Peter was one of the, the, the people, the apostles that held credence in Corinth. 
You recall back in chapter three, how that there was a whole group of them that said, well, we follow Peter primarily in our, in our walk with Christ. And so listen, Jesus appeared specifically to Peter. And so if you've received Peter's testimony, Peter's testimony is that he saw Jesus after he rose from the grave. Therefore, Jesus must have risen. Then after that, number three, he was seen of the 12, a number given to that group of privileged apostles that walked with Jesus for three and a half years, whom he appeared to on a few occasions during the 40 days after he rose from the dead before the ascension. Then after that in verse six, it says that he was seen by more than 500 brethren at one time of whom the greater part remain unto this present. Most of those 500 people that saw Jesus are alive even to this day, even though some, he says, are fallen asleep, that is that they have died. Then, fifthly, after that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And that would include the 12, but it would also include the companions of the 12, as we read in the book of Acts that even Barnabas was kind of listed amongst that number in that way. So just the the greater group of them that saw Jesus after that. And then finally, number seven, the seventh witness called to the stand in this. He says that last of all, he was seen by me also as of one that was born out of due time. And so Paul testifies as he writes the letter to the Galatians. And as you read Galatians chapter one, he talks about the gospel that he received. And he says, the gospel that I received, I did not receive it from men. He says, but I received it by revelation of Jesus Christ himself. And after the apostle Paul had his initial conversion and the initial days and weeks of his ministry in Antioch and then in, or I'm sorry, Damascus and then in Jerusalem, after that, he was sent home and he spent during that time a period of years in the wilderness where at some point Jesus appeared to Paul and taught him. And, and, and prepared him for the ministry that he would then uh, embark upon uh, seven or eight years after he was saved, when he would begin going to the churches and, and establishing churches and whatnot. And so Paul can testify and say, I have seen Jesus, the resurrected Lord. And so for you to deny that there is a resurrection means that you are throwing away the testimony of Peter and of all the apostles And of all of the 500 brothers that saw him at one time, all of whom who are are testifying even to this day that they saw Jesus after he was alive and then of James and then of the greater group and then of me also. And so for you to do that would be to deny the testimony of not just two or three witnesses, but of many, many, many witnesses that have seen and do affirm that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. Now, the foundation of every jurisprudence system in the world is that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact will be established. That was true in the Old Testament concerning the Jewish law. It's true in our day in our country. It's the foundation of how facts are established by the testimony of eyewitnesses. And what Paul does here is he brings the testimony of eyewitnesses to bear upon the doubt that was cast upon the Corinthians by those that would say that there is no resurrection. Now, he kind of gives three verses here of a little bit of um, biography or autobiography and that they might say, well, who are you, Paul, that we should listen to you or care about your testimony in these things? And he says to them in verse nine, he says, for I am the least of the apostles, 
that am not meet or worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And so Paul recognized that this is where I came from. I came from a background of hostility toward the church and towards the things of God. And I was saved out of that position. And, and, and yet God in his grace called me. And I don't deserve the title of being called an apostle because that's who I am. He says, for I am the least of the apostles, not called to be uh, meet to be called because I persecuted. But he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. And I love Paul's attitude concerning himself. He says, look, I know when I look in in the mirror each morning what it is that God got when he saved my life. I know what I was before he saved me, and I know what I am even to this present day. Paul would say to the Romans, he would say that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. And that was present tense. He didn't say in the past. He knew that apart from Christ, I am nothing. The chief of sinners, he would call himself in another place. And here, even at this point in his ministry, having experienced success and seeing great fruit in what God has used him to do, he looks over his life and he says, I'm not worthy to be in the position that I'm in or to be who I am or to do what I get to do. But putting that aside, he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. And understand this church, that you are what you are by the grace of God. And if you sit here tonight and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and you have a relationship with the true and living God and he has done a work in bringing you from what you once were to what you are today and you experience in that a little bit of blessing to whatever degree you experience his blessing, then that is the grace of God that has been bestowed upon your life. You and I deserve absolutely nothing of the good that God has done for us. He did not save us because we were greater, because he saw something in us that was better or any bit of nobility. We were sinful through and through and worthy and deserving of his wrath on every level. And he has been good to us because he is good. And he's revealed his son to us because he's gracious. And we stand in him tonight because of grace. And any good thing that's coming out of your life today, whether it's a ministry that he's given you and an ability to reach other people, or whether it's just what he's given you for your life, your career, or your gifts, or your family, or anything else, all that you have is of grace. You are, and I am tonight, what we are by grace, and that alone. Now, I love what Paul says about that grace, because he says this. He says that that grace that was bestowed upon me was not bestowed upon me in vain. In other words, I haven't wasted the grace that God has given me by just living a life of obscurity and basking in his blessing without doing anything in return. He says, because of the grace that God has given, not I've earned the grace and therefore, but because of the grace I've been given, he says, I have labored more abundantly than each of the other apostles combined. Now that's a bold thing to say, isn't it? You say, Paul, would you say that in the presence of Peter or in the presence of some of the other apostles if they were there with you? Yeah, Paul says, I would. In fact, I'd write it in the Bible. And if you look at Paul's stats, 
you'd see that the story actually checks out. He traveled more miles than any of the other apostles traveled. He planted more churches than any of the other apostles planted. And he's responsible for writing more scripture than any of the other apostles uh, have written. And so as you look at the fruit that came out of his life, his story actually checks out that he did labor more abundantly than they all. But do you notice that the motivation behind Paul's labor was not so that he would receive grace. It was because he received grace. It was response to what God had already done for him. God, you've been so good to me and you've done such great things in my life that I feel I'm a debtor now to you and I want to serve you on account of all that you've done for me. The recipe for a blessed life is to labor in the things of God because of what he has already done for you. You will find blessing and fulfillment and satisfaction and fruit in all of that. If, on the other hand, you labor and toil for God so that you can try to earn something from God, his favor or his love or salvation, then that is the recipe for burnout and misery and fruitlessness. It's amazing that labor can produce one of two things. It can produce misery and it can produce blessing. And it all comes back to motive. Why are you serving Christ? Paul would say, my service to him is motivated by what he's already done for me. I can't add anything to it. It's just out of pure response and love that I'm serving him in return. And so he says, I labored more abundantly than they all. And now watch this, his humility. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. In other words, even the things that I have done for him and the labor that I've bestowed has not been my own. It's been grace that God's given to me. When you look at Paul and some of the things that he did, how he went into Lystra, the city, and he preached the gospel there. And at first they said, it's the words of a God and not of a man. And as he tore open his, his shirt and showed that his scars, that he was flesh, and he says, no, we're, this, we're not anything special. We are men just like everyone else. We're not gods. We bleed and die, you know. And then an evil report came by some of the Judaizers and they dragged Paul outside the city and they stoned him to death. The same people that were about to worship him stoned him and left him for dead outside the city. And then you read what happened. He stood up from that, God not taking him at that time, and he brushed himself off and he went back into the city and kept preaching the gospel. Who does that? You know, <laughs> that's grace. That's a grace that God had bestowed upon his life for him to be able to be driven in that way to serve God with that type of purpose. And anything that we do for him, not only do we do it out of the motivation of grace, but we're enabled and empowered by his grace. Do you see that everything is grace? The whole life that we live in this Christian thing is all grace, everything that he's done. Not one bit of anything else, just as grace. Therefore, he says in verse 11, whether it were I or they, so we preach. That is the resurrection. And that is what you believed, this message. Now, he goes on in verse 12. He says, if Christ is preached that he rose from the dead, then how say some among you that there is no resurrection from the dead? In other words, you're declaring that there's no resurrection. In so doing, what you are saying is that you are smarter than the Bible. And anytime a person declares with their beliefs or their mouth that they are smarter than the Bible, 
It serves you well to create as much distance between you and that person as possible because they have entered into the arena of toxic and very self-destructive. Every word that God has recorded in the Bible is absolutely true. And any time a Christian takes anything that God has spoken in the word of God and says, that is not true, or I'm distancing myself from that belief, or I believe everything else about the Christian faith, but not that thing about the Christian faith, then you can just watch out. And here's why you can watch out. Because there are going to be consequences in that person's life. And we see it all the time, don't we? I mean, you look at someone and they say, yeah, I believe in Jesus and I believe in the gospel. I even believe in the resurrection, the virgin birth. I believe in the whole thing. But I don't believe I need to be married to this person before I move in with them. I don't believe that that's the heart of God at all. I believe that God knows my heart and he knows love and all that. And I can just not obey in this area and that's going to be okay. That person has declared that they are smarter than the Bible and that somehow they're going to go through without consequences to the thing that they have compromised in. Every time a person compromises on something that God has said, there will be consequences that immediately follow. And that is what Paul gets into now. He's going to say, okay, you don't want to believe the resurrection. You want to disregard the witness of all those that saw him personally. Then if there's no resurrection, then be prepared that these consequences also come into your life. Because no resurrection means these things also. He says, first of all, in verse 13, he says, if there be no resurrection from the dead, then that means Jesus Christ is not risen. Now, pause right there and just think about the implications of Jesus Christ being not risen. What would that mean if Jesus wasn't risen? Well, it would mean, first of all, that he was insane. Or as Pastor Bobby would say, that he was a kook. You know, that Jesus was nothing more than a kook. Because he claimed that he would rise again from the dead. And if Jesus really believed that he would rise from the dead, but yet he wouldn't rise from the dead, or he didn't know that he would rise from the dead, even though he said it, then he's not worthy of anyone following his life because he was absolutely insane. The other alternative to that is that he was just a charlatan, a deceiver, and a liar. And it would make him the worst kind of liar that you could actually uh, have. Because what he did in claiming that he would rise from the dead is that he called people to not only follow him, but to lose their life for his sake and to be completely absorbed in who he is. That would be like if I sat before you here tonight and I claimed that I was an orange tree. And in claiming that I was an orange tree, I promised you that if you would follow me and invest in me, that I could provide for you oranges. Now, it might be that I'm just insane and that I really believe that I'm an orange tree, but I can't produce oranges even still. And so if you invest in me, you've wasted your investment because I can't give to you the thing that I provided. But if I know that I'm not an orange tree and I tell you that you should invest in me as one, then I'm the worst kind of liar that there is because I'm asking you to give me something, promising something in return, knowing that I can't produce the thing that I promised. So if Jesus promised that he could produce a resurrection and eternal life through that resurrection, 
and that by investing your life in him that you would obtain that same resurrection if he knew that he couldn't produce that result in his own life and then also in yours, then that makes him the worst kind of charlatan liar that ever existed. And so if there is no resurrection, then it makes the very foundation of who it is that we believe in completely faulty. He's worth nothing. Jesus isn't risen from the dead. That's a pretty severe consequence, wouldn't you say? The second consequence, he goes on to say in verse 14, he says, and if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. The second consequence of this is that the word that was preached by Paul and also the word that was being preached in their churches Sunday after Sunday and day after day was completely empty. It was worthless because the Bible teaches that there will be a resurrection from the dead. In Psalm chapter 49, the psalmist, in this case, the psalmist is of the sons of Korah. And in that psalm, the psalmist is talking about the, the destiny of those that are wicked and the life that they live here on this world. And he says concerning uh, those there, he says, um, those that would be saved out of the, that number, he says that he, the saved person, should still live forever and not see corruption that there would be an everlasting life that would be given to them. And then he boils it down further in verse 15 to say, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave for he shall receive me. That there was an everlasting life that was expected even of those that followed God in Old Testament times. In the book of Job, we read of Job's complaint before the Lord. And he says these famous verses that have been put to poetry and put to song on so many occasions. He says in verse 25 of chapter 19, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin uh, worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself and mine eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Though this body be corrupted by the grave, Yet he says it will be resurrected and I know that in my flesh I will see the true and living God. In Hosea chapter 13 verse 14, the prophet Hosea declares by the spirit of God, he says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. And so God declares not just a few times, but many times throughout the, the scriptures that there will be a resurrection. Jesus himself. In Mark chapter 12, he was questioned by the Sadducees on this very question of the resurrection of the dead. And they brought to him the eloquent speech about the man who married a woman but died before having children. And then seven of his brothers took her and none of them had children. And they said, whose wife will will she be in the resurrection, thinking that they trapped him? Like, how could there be a resurrection? How foolish. And Jesus replied to them and he said, you do err because you know not the scriptures, neither the power of God. He says, what does it say in the scriptures concerning God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He said, he is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And he put them to silence proving in his doctrine that the scriptures declare that there is a resurrection. And so for a Christian to claim that there is none 
is to negate the word of the scripture. And so Paul says, my preaching is in vain if there's no resurrection because it makes the Bible null and void. Listen, the Bible is either all true or not true at all. It can't be both. It's the word of God or it's the word of nothing. And the Bible teaches resurrection. The third thing he says, the third consequence is he says that if there is no resurrection, then Christ, or I'm sorry, then he says, then your faith also is in vain. He's going to come back to that with reason in a minute. So we'll breeze over it for now and move on to verse 15, number four. He says, yea, and on top of that, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. And so Paul says the fourth consequence is that not only have we no credentials at all before God, but we join the ranks of liar and charlatan uh, amongst any other because we have preached to you and testified that there is one and it would make us liars if we are. And so if you still give respect to us, you should stop right now. If you don't want to believe the resurrection, then just take this letter, rip it up, take up your history with me, take up everything that you saw in my life, all the good fruit, everything that's there, just throw it out. Just throw it right out with the resurrection because none of that is real. It's all a lie. It's all fake if there's no resurrection. Then he goes on in verse 16. He says, for if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised? And if Christ be not raised, then your faith is vain. That's the, uh, the next consequence or the third consequence is we, we talk about the vanity of faith. Listen, if your faith has no answer for the resurrection of, uh, of your body and of giving you eternal life, then your faith is vain. If your faith can't answer the issue of death, and that's something that every one of us faces in the natural realm, then your faith is absolutely worthless to you. Jesus is victorious and qualified to be called the Savior because he conquered death. And he conquered death by rising again. And if there is no resurrection, then your faith is for nothing. You might as well believe in something else. You might as well go to Barnes & Noble tonight, go to the self-help section, and just buy every book that's there and try to eke your way through this world in some way without ruining your life because that's all you've got. But what this gospel and what this resurrection does is it gives us an answer for the great plague that every one of us faces, and that is the plague of death. And if there's no resurrection, then your faith is absolutely in vain. That's a consequence. Then the next one, he says, is that you are yet in your sins. If there's no resurrection and Jesus didn't rise, then your sins are still laid to your account. They haven't been forgiven. They haven't been cast as far as the east is from the west. If you're here tonight and you stand guiltless because of of this Christ and this gospel, you you should just start feeling guilty right now because you are. He has not met the qualifications to remove your sin from you if there is no resurrection. But if there is a resurrection, then that means that God accepted payment for your sins upon his son. So Paul says, you don't believe in the resurrection? Then you just start feeling guilty and you better start saying a whole bunch of Hail Marys at this point (laughs) because that's all you've got. Then he says in verse 18, he says, then, another consequence, they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. That is that physical death equals final death. 
that those that have gone before us, the loved ones that we've buried and held memorial services for, that we stand in the legacy of their faith, you might as well right now just kiss the hope of ever seeing them again goodbye. Because if they are, if there's no resurrection, then death is death and they're gone. And so you should have no hope at all that you'll ever see them again. And then finally, uh, the last seventh consequence here in verse 19, he says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we are of all men most miserable or among men we have misery like everyone else is that there's no difference or distinction between us and anyone else in the world because the same hopeless situation that is upon them is upon us and the same end of their hopeless situation is upon us as well is that we are going to die and there's an addendum to that that makes us even just a little bit more miserable than they are. And that is that we are living our life for a lie. And it's one thing to live your life for something and, and maybe enjoy a little bit of success in it, you know, and then come to the end of it and realize, you know, I made some mistakes along the way and all the rest. But to live your life and come to the end of it and realize that everything that you were living for and giving yourself to was absolutely false, that's a horrible feeling. Because you realize at the end of it all that I wasted my life. I gave it to something that is completely worthless. The words, one, some of the words that haunt me the most in the Bible are the words of King Saul when he was about to die. Is that he looked over the span of his life and all of the opportunities that he had and all that God had done for him. And he had turned his heart away from God and lived completely for self. Man, that is a horrible thing to live your life for and he came to the end of a life that was lived for self and he said i have played the fool and erred greatly and anyone who lives their life for something that isn't eternal will stand at the end of their life and they'll look back over it and they'll say i've played the fool and i've erred greatly and if there is no resurrection from the dead then every single christian that has ever lived their life with a commitment towards Christ, will stand at the end of their life and they will say, I have erred greatly because I gave myself to something that did not have the answer for the greatest need that I have, which was the answer for death. And so these are the consequences the Apostle Paul says for not believing in a resurrection. You don't want to believe in the supernatural? Then kiss all of these other things goodbye as well. And what you find is that the resurrection is very important and a very important part of this gospel that we believe in, and it touches every other part of it. Thankfully, Paul can go on to say in verse 20, he says, but now is Christ risen from the dead, and he's become the first fruits of them that slept or of them that died. Now, the first fruits in the Bible spoke of the early harvest that would be gathered after a season of, um, of cultivating a crop or of a field. And so you'd go out on the first day of the harvest and you would toil that day with great excitement because now you're reaping the benefits of everything that you've worked for this whole season. And you would look over the labor of that day of harvesting and that, that abundance of what you brought in on just that first day, that would be considered the first fruits. And the reason it was called the first fruits is because you knew that behind the gathering of the first fruits, there was a whole field after the fact that would then be harvested later on. 
And so by calling Jesus the first fruits of those that died and rose again, what he's saying is that Jesus was the first one to conquer death in this way as a man and to be brought back to life. But that after him now, there's going to be a whole host of others that will also rise from the dead in this harvest of his labor, the fruit of his labor, that is, that they will be resurrected as well. And here's how that works in verse 21. He says, for since by man came death, and that, of course, is speaking of Adam, the man who originally sinned that brought this curse upon us. He says, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. And I, in my Bible, have both of those words, man, circled. Man being Adam who died and man, Jesus, who lived. And it's an important thing to understand that though Jesus was fully God, he came into this world fully man, and he had to, to meet the qualifications for redemption. If Adam brought sin upon man as a man, then Jesus would have to redeem man from that curse being a man. It was just part of the rules. It was the law of the kinsman redeemer, that he had to be in the family. And so Jesus was a man. So since by man came death, By man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, that is, Adam was the first fruits of sinners. We're all here today experiencing and reaping the the further harvest of sin because of what Adam started. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That is, all those that are in Christ. So Adam started this problem that we are beneficiaries of, not by choice. And Jesus brought solution to the problem that by choice, we can bring ourselves under his banner, be born after the spirit, and we can receive resurrection even as Jesus did. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ said is coming. Then comes the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. That is, God has put all things under the feet of Christ. But when he says all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted. That is, God himself, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, to the Father, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. In other words, there's a purposeful mission that God is accomplishing through his work within the world. Sin, redemption, subjection of all things under the Son, then deliverance of all things to the Father who will then reign supreme over all them that have been resurrected in the end. Now, Paul goes on to argue for the rationale that there is in fact a resurrection in verse 29. He says, otherwise, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Now, I can tell you absolutely with clarity what this verse does not mean. And that is what the Mormon church has made it to mean. And that is that you can, if you're a believer in Christ, 
go through the genealogical record of your ancestry and that you can go through and you can experience baptism on behalf of all those that have already died and that maybe died apart from Christ and that somehow you can now secure their eternal salvation by your baptism at some time in a future date. The Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. You have one opportunity, and that is while you are alive, to say yes or to say no to the gospel. And after that, your eternity is secured based upon the decision that you made during your lifetime. Nobody can reach back into your life through an act that they give themselves to in the, in the future and somehow change your eternal destination based on their baptism for you. That is not what this verse means. You say, well, what in the world then does it mean that he says, why would someone be baptized for the dead? It's actually quite simple. It's not that you would be baptized in place of a dead person. It's that you would be baptized in the name of a dead person. That is, if Jesus is dead and he didn't rise again, then why would you be baptized into him? You'd be being baptized for the dead. See, baptism is association. It's becoming one. We're baptized into his death and into his resurrection. When we go under the water, we're declaring, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live to myself. Nevertheless, I do live, yet not I, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so baptism is associating with the life of Christ, not just his death. But if he just died and didn't rise, then I'm being baptized and I'm assimilating myself with a dead person. Paul says, why would someone do that? Why would I be baptized for someone who's dead? And furthermore, verse 30, why stand we in jeopardy every hour? In other words, remember at the beginning of this teaching tonight when I talked about the sparks that fly upward and the sorrow that we experience in this life? Why in the world would we experience those things and allow ourselves to be subjected to the difficulty that it is to be a Christian in a world that's hostile towards Christians if there is no resurrection at the end of this life? It's not worth it, Paul would say. Concerning his own situation, he would say in verse 31, I protest by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. In other words, Paul's saying, you look at my life and you say, hey, you're just a pastor. You're just a preacher. You've got it easy. You just sit in your office all day and that's it. That's your life as a, as a preacher, Paul. We wish we could have your life, then we'd be happy like you are. Paul says, I protest against that. He says, you have no idea what it is to be me and what it is that I go through. Paul says, I die daily. I'm not talking about death to self here. I'm not talking about denying myself a meal or fasting in some way. He's saying the things that I have to go through. When we read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and we go through the list of perils that Paul went through, he says, I was beaten with rods. I was whipped 39 lashes five separate times. I spent a day and a night shipwrecked, lost at sea. And, and those are the things that happened to me outward. That's not even to mention my concern and care for all the churches the Judaizers, the imprisonments, the difficulties that he went through. He says, why in the world would I go through these things? In verse 32, he says, 
if after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, then what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? He's saying, listen, when I was in Ephesus and the riot started over the incident with Diana of the Ephesians, and they, they, they nearly killed me that day and I fought with, as it were, wild beasts. He says, why would I do that if there is no resurrection from the dead? What purpose is it? He says, the attitude of my life ought to be, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection for the dead, then it stands to reason that we ought to live to eke every bit of pleasure that we can out of this life as long as we're here. Because once it's gone, it's gone. And there's nothing worthy to live for outside of self if there is no resurrection from the dead. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And here's the conclusion that he's bringing this to in verse 33. We'll stop after verse 34. So he says, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Notice the two things in that verse. There are communications and there are manners. Communications are words, right? Manners are actions. And what Paul is saying is this. Is he's saying, listen, be careful. Because the things that you take in and that you allow to become a part of what you believe are going to look like something in your life. And if you're living a life as a Christian, as though there is no resurrection from the dead, then the the picture that is going to mark your life is let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You can, it is possible, profess to believe in a resurrection with your mouth and yet deny that there's a resurrection with your life. And that is that if there is nothing in you that is pressing towards what is to come, then you are testifying with your life that you don't believe that there is a resurrection. That's what Paul's saying. Don't be deceived. Evil communication corrupts good manners. You're going to find your life slipping into a place where it is obscure and useless. In Philippians chapter 3, when Paul gives his own credentials, he talks about what he has in this world, in this life. He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. I was a scholar who studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He just talks about all of the qualifications that could make him something in this life. And those things would make you something in this life. But he says concerning all of those things, he says, I do count all of those things as dung or as rubbish in exchange for the fact that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, and if by any means I might be made conformable into the image of his death. He says, I forget those things which are behind, and I press towards the mark of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus, if that by some means I might apprehend or attain that for which I've been called, that is eternal life. And he lived his whole life with eternity in view in such a way that he knew that one day he would stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and that everything that he did in this life would translate into something that could either last for all of eternity or that would perish and mean absolutely nothing. And his belief in the resurrection that was to come drove him to spend and be spent 
for the purposes of the gospel. And Paul says, what you believe concerning the resurrection is going to have a direct effect in the drive and in the purpose that you have for your life and how much of it is lived for Christ. He says in verse 34, concluding for tonight, he says, awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Is that your position on this is going to result either in a fruitful and effective life or it's going to result in a carnal, useless, and sinful life. And it makes a huge, huge difference. As the worship team comes, I'll just remind you tonight. There was a sparrow. And he had the objective and the goal of emptying the entire Atlantic Ocean into the entire Pacific Ocean. And the only thing he had at his disposal to do it was his beak. And so he started on the Atlantic coast and he took a beak full of water, salt water. Man, it was salty. It parched him. But he hopped from the Atlantic coast all the way across the United States of America and he unloaded that beak full of ocean water into the Pacific Ocean. And then he hopped back all the way across the continent. And he took another beak full. And then he hopped over to the Pacific and spit it into the water and then hopped back across. And he just did this and did this and did this. Now listen. By the time that bird empties the entire Atlantic Ocean into the Pacific Ocean, the first morning of the first day of eternity has passed. We're talking about eternal life. And what Paul is declaring to us by the Spirit of God is that everything that we do with eternity in mind and in response to the gospel makes a difference for how we'll spend that eternity. And he's declaring to us tonight that it's worth it. So may God give us, especially coming off of Resurrection Weekend as we have, a fresh view of what it means, not only that Jesus rose from the dead, but that one day we will rise from the dead and that we'll enjoy an eternity with him. And may God show us where our place is by his grace in bringing him glory while we live in this world. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. And we ask that you would take the things that we've heard tonight and that they wouldn't just be assimilated into our knowledge base, but they would turn into actions in our lives. And that one day, Lord, we might stand in a place where we might say that I am what I am by the grace of God. And that though I was not worthy, I labored more abundantly, yet not I, but even the grace that was given to me. And so, Father, would you please tonight give us a fresh filling with your Holy Spirit, a fresh vision for our lives and for our ministry and for our families and for our world and for our church. And that, God, that you would use us in such a mighty way beyond what we could ask or think. And that you would get glory, Lord, through what you do in it. And we ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.